Good morning, church. Shalom. Welcome back to the house of God. It is so good to see everyone of you. Yes, Pastor Lichu mentioned that the VDS is lifting tomorrow. And I was just commenting just now earlier on as I greet Gracians at the, at the entrance that I've seen many new faces because for the last three years, you guys have been wearing masks. So when now you unmask, I can't recognize some of you. Hallelujah. So Family Matters, indeed, we have come to the eighth installment of the sermon series, Family Matters. And in this series, we have been addressing issues in the Corinth church that are still applicable to us today as a spiritual family. So this week, we will continue in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 to examine the distinctiveness in the new family. And the title for today's message is Gathered, Complete or Compete. Complete, complete or compete? Oh, wrong calling. Yeah, it's taken for 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2 to verse 34. Right? How many of you know that Singapore is ranked one of the most competitive countries in the world? How many of you know that? Well, we want to be top in everything, right? We, have, we strive to be the best, to have the best airport, seaport, education, healthcare, and many more. And uh, just two, last two weeks ago, we have the F1, which is the first night race in the world. So somehow, being competitive has been a part of our Singapore culture and identity. Inevitably, the culture has permeated into the church as well. Well, as, as we gather as a church on every weekend, whether it's for weekend services or for grace groups gathering, have we unknowingly tried to compare ourselves with others? What car he's driving, what bag he's, uh, she's carrying, or even we have to trip the best seats in front, right, for ourselves and all those. But church, we have, we have not gathered here to compete with one another but we are here to complete one another. Say with me, complete. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul highlighted the issue regarding the Corinth church. And the issue was, they were not considering one another when they gathered. They are not considering one another when they gathered. As a spiritual family, we know we ought to think for one another, consider one another, so that we can honour God. So the big idea for today is, God wants us to be discerning in how we behave when we gather. God wants us to be discerning in how we behave when we gather. Paul addresses two issues of the Corinthian church where they were not considering one another when they are gathering. And one of the issues is regarding uh, corporate worship, the first part, and the second part is regarding the Lord's Supper. And Paul gave two principles to address these two problems in the Corinth church. Let us dive in right now to the first problem. So what is the first problem? The first problem is not wearing of head coverings during corporate worship. Taken from verse 2 to 16. Paul spent 15 verses addressing the issue of head covering from a cultural lens. Right? From the passage, we see that women were either praying or prophesying without the customary head covering or appropriate hairstyle. They were probably taught by Paul on spiritual freedom and equality, that they were all one 
in Christ Jesus. So the women were worshipping with, with the men without their headdress, which was a customary requirement in their culture of those days. But Paul said this in verse 13 and 16. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, not the churches of God. Wow, wait a minute. Ladies must cover their hair in corporate worships. Hallelujah. While we don't practice that in the church today, it is a cultural issue back in the first century. So what was the problem? Very quickly, I suggest three possible reasons. Number one, the issue of marital status and allegiance. In the first century Corinthian culture, appropriate head covering or even uh, long hair signify proper relationship to her fiancé or husband. The lack of hair covering or long hair signal infidelity to God and to her men. So verse 3 to verse 5 alluded to it that every wife who prayed or prophesied with her head uncovered dishonoured her husband. So first, first possible reasons. The next possible reasons, the issue of modesty. Women's hair was considered a common object of lust in those days. Much of the Eastern Mediterranean women were expected to cover their hair. They were expected to, right? Failure to cover their hair was thought to provoke male lust, just as how a scantily dressed women today is regarded to provoke male lust in today's culture. And moreover, the upper-class women were eager, probably very eager to show off their fashionable new hairstyle after spending three to four hours in the hairdresser that they decided not to practice head covering because they have their spiritual freedom in that. So they want to go and go to join the church gathering without their customary hair covering. And lastly, the third possible reasons, the issue of distinction between male and female. As part of their new spirituality, the Corinth woman uh, may have confused spiritual equality with the lack of gender difference. They began to disregard some of the very customary distinction between the genders that would otherwise have been regarded as disgraceful. But Paul over here, you can see that he argued from the cultural point of view. We can read from verse 3 to 9. Let's read it together again. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is a husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her head short. Since, but since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her head or to cut her hair or shave her head, whoa, scary. Let her. Let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is 
the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made for woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. So what is Paul trying to uh, uh, allude to in this whole passage over here from verse 3 to 9? Paul desired them to maintain the distinction between male and female. And he shifted the problem from expressing one's individual freedom to relational responsibility to honour one another. He said this, every wife is responsible to her husband and every man is responsible to Christ. And Paul alluded that women without head covering brought shame to her husband and hence, in the same sense, dishonoured Christ. Moreover, the lack of head covering in their corporate worship became a source of distraction in their gathering. And it, it took away the rightful focus on God. So ladies, next week when you come, remember to cover your head. Nah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Alright. But how is this relevant in today's culture and context? That's very important, right? So the first principle is this. As we gather corporately, we need to honour God by not drawing attention away from Him. Honour God by not drawing away attention from Him. The Corinthian women caused heads to turn towards them during their gathering. So now you know where the, the, the head turners, right? They ought to look at them, you know. The Corinthian women caused head to turn towards them during their gatherings. While long hair no longer signify infidelity or regarded as an object of lust in today's culture, what will be some of the examples of robbing God's attention in our context today? May I submit to you that relevant to our modern context is how we dress and also how we behave in church for community worship. How we dress and how we behave. We need to, application number one, we need to consider one another. Our freedom should be balanced with relational responsibility. Let me say it again. Consider one another. Our freedom should be balanced with relational responsibility. Yes, you can express your individual freedom in dressing whatever you, you like, but be modest in presenting yourself. And I do not mean just for the ladies here. It also applies both ways to the men as well. Right? Be modest and appropriate in your dressings. Don't dress or behave in such a way that will cause distractions. Check the motivation. Check our motivation of dressing and behaviour, especially when we enter into the house of God for corporate worship. One's freedom shouldn't, shouldn't cause another member in the body of Christ to stumble, to fall into sin. We have to consider the weaker ones, the more easily distracted ones, lest we cause them to lose their focus in worship. Very interestingly, uh, I just came back for a mission trip to Philippines about three weeks ago. I, the church that I ministered to organized a sports festival, uh, sports festival after the Sunday service to engage the community. The idea is to bring the community together. So they arranged basketball and volleyball games tournament in the afternoon. 
So many, many members from the community particip participated and they attended the church service before the games. So I joined them after the games uh, so that I can engage the youth, engage the young adults. But I couldn't stop noticing two males. Uh, okay, I'm straight by the way. I can't stop noticing two males who is wearing very thick makeup, lipstick, eyeshadow, mascara, you know, and then very, th very short, pink shorts. I couldn't notice that. So when the pastor saw that uh, I was looking at them, uh, I was puzzled. So he, so, he, so, he, so he told me that day that actually, pastor, I've reminded them to dress modestly uh, to the church service that Sunday because I told them that, you know, we have overseas speaker and guests. So they actually dress normal, normally to the church service, but they transform, go to the phone booth and change and become a pink shorts at the games. I, couldn't I could not imagine if that day I see them at the first row worshipping God in that sports attire that Sunday morning. Many of us would have been distracted. So they did the right thing. They considered one another and they honoured God by not drawing attention away from Him. Christ should be the centre of everyone's focus. Can I hear a lot? Amen. Hallelujah. And God wants us to be discerning in how we behave when we gather. And we know that we are honouring God when we consider one another when we give up our individual freedom and rights. So we have first examined the first problem with regards to wearing our head covering during corporate worship that we should honour God by not drawing attention away from Him. So what is the second problem here? The second problem here is causing division during the Lord's Supper. Causing division during the Lord's Supper. So what did the Corinth church do this time? How did the Corinth church behave this time? From 1 Corinthians 11, uh, verse 17 to 34, we see that the rich were abusing the Lord's, the Lord's Supper and destroying the church as one body of Christ. Let's read together from verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. I do not praise you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you, have, when you come together as a church, I hear that there, there, were, there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognised. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with, this, with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Wait, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And verse 33, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. From the passage, we can see clearly what the problem was. Earlier, we have the customary distinction removed in their lack of head covering, but now, we see a distinction made according to their social status. Some were treated more honourably than the others at a communion 
meal. They are treated more honorably than the others at a communal meal. This treatment reflected the worldly value placed on wealth and status and caused division amongst the Corinthian believers. The Corinthians seem to have lost sight of the meaning of the Lord's Supper. Instead of remembering Christ, His sacrifice and His soon return, they treated the meal as a banquet similar to those uh, Greek festivals. And as we examined the, uh, in the first sermon, as we have examined, the churches in Corinth met in well-to-do patrons' homes. They met in uh, the well-to-do patrons' home because it's bigger. Uh, and in the Greco-Roman society, patrons often seated and served members of their own high-class believers in the formal dining room called the triclinium, while the others were squeezed in the atrium with plain view of that special room. So you can imagine they sit in the plain, sit in the atrium with a plain view of the special room, seeing that they are seated very well and serve very good food. So hi to those seated at the gallery. You are the high-class people. Hello, hello. Right? And during the Lord's Supper, the guests in the larger room below here, the atrium, will serve inferior food and inferior wine and often complain about the situation. This was a societal problem that spilled into the church. Their holy communion to honour the Lord was in fact dishonouring to Him in two ways. Firstly, the issue of abusing other believers by going ahead with their own private meals. They're abusing other believers. You see that the believers from the higher social class proceeded with the Lord's Supper, or we call it a feast in their, in their time, with their own private meals, and they demeaning, and thus demeaning the lower social class believers. The one group was happily uh, gorging on food and wine, thus the Bible said they are drunk, while the other groups, the poorer brothers and sisters, received nothing to eat, thus, thus they are labelled as hungry. Paul's concerns was not with the drunkenness of one, but with the hunger of the other. Especially we know that in that context, where all fellow believers should have more than enough to eat and drink if it was shared. He condemned such abusive behaviour by having this distinction according to their social, societal status when they gathered together. So that was the, the first one. So instead of being a part of one another, they were apart from one another. Do you get it? <laughs> instead of being a part of one another, they were now apart from one another. They separated themselves according to their social class in different rooms. And such practice went against what Christ did at the table. And that was to unite everyone in Him with this sacred meal. And the, but the fact of going ahead with their own private meal showed their contempt upon the church of God by shaming and humiliating those who had nothing. Perhaps you are, if you read the passage, you'll notice that come together, this phrase was repeated five times 
from verse 17 to 34, come together. It signifies coming as one united body of Christ. The Corinthian problem was not their failure to gather physically on-site in their home churches, but rather their failure was how to truly behave as God's new people when they gathered. So say with me, be apart, not apart. For those online, type, type with me, be apart, not apart. So the first issue of abusing other believers by going ahead with their own private meal. And the second issue is this, the issue of abusing the Lord's Supper. The issue of abusing the Lord's Supper. Christ's finished work unites us. But some, something, is, something spiritual is happening at the Lord's table. It is more than just being symbolic. Christ is there with us as we celebrate His death and resurrection. Can I hear a loud amen? But the Corinthian church dishonoured the Lord's Supper by eating in an unworthy manner. You read from here, verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. If we judge ourselves truly, we will not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. The passage actually said that people will actually judge and die because they ate the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Of course, the judgment here was not in the sense of losing one's salvation, but divine discipline. And we con usually consider eating in an unworthy manner uh, as partaking of the Holy Communion with unconfessing, unconfessing, right? Oh, this morning before I come to church, I scolded my wife and children. Or maybe before I leave the house, I kick my dog, you know. So when you come to a communion, you start confessing all the sins that you've committed since the last communion one month ago in case you get zapped or you be, you'll become barbecue, right? So what is important here is to... Well, it is very important for us to seek God's forgiveness each time we sin. But it is not what it meant here. Context is important. Eating and drinking in an unworthy manner in this passage refers to despising one another at the Lord's table. It's referring to the attitude of separating the church instead of uniting it when you partake the communion. So the second principle here is this. As we gather for communion, we need to honour God by recognising the one body of Christ. We need to honour God by recognising the one body body of Christ. We partake the communion together as one body of Christ, accepting each other, the rich and the poor, the have and the have-nots. We all eat the same wafer and cup, 
drink from the same cup. No one has extra ingredient in it. If the emblem you took last week has some special flavouring, durian or peanut butter, please let, let me know immediately. It could be expired. And verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 says this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though, one, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were, baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. In Christ, we were all joined together as one body. Yes, each of us may belong to a certain societal class by birth or by circumstances. Uh, last year, there was an article published by the Straits Times. Those the social divide in our own society is a very real issue. There is a lack of social mixing between the elites and the non-elites, between the public housing and the private housing residents. And this is understandable. I mean, the word says, uh, birds of a feather flock together. But this social divide can happen in churches as well. This social divide can happen in churches as well if you're not careful. So, but for Paul, bringing the social norm into the Lord's Supper voided the meaning of the Supper itself because it destroyed the very unity which the meal proclaimed. So, second application. What is our application today? Consider one another, be united and treat one another equally. Consider one another, be united, and treat one another equally. By rejecting other members of Christ's body, the Corinthians also rejected the saving gift of the Lord's body represented by the bread. The salvation that Christ had brought through His death and resurrection was intended to make the believers one, not divided as their supper did. Apostle Paul's intent was not to eliminate the social distinction. Let me be very clear here. Because he alluded that in verse 22, don't you not have houses to eat and drink? The rich and the wealthy uh, had their own house that they can eat their own private meals. But Paul here was encouraging the Corinthians to wait for one another when they come together to partake the Lord's Supper. They should receive, they should accept, they should welcome each other. If they want to eat uh, uh, extravagantly, they should do that in their own homes. And Paul did not suggest that all should eat all the privileged portion of the well-to-do, but rather he's implying that in the faith community, the well-to-do should eat what the rest does. Well, in our cafe, we don't have a special reserved portion of Wagyu beef from Pastor Wilson. Everybody eats the same. Sandwich, fried bee hoon, chakwetia, or oh, no chakwetia, sorry. Yeah, chicken wings. Everybody eats the same. We serve the same coffee. No Starbucks, no coffee bean. So if you want to eat your Musang King, you eat at home. But over here, we all eat kompong durian. We all eat the same food. What Paul would not allow the Corinthians to do was to bring that social distinction or division to the common family meal of believers, which Christ Himself has made them all one, signified 
where they are eating of one loaf. We read that from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of that one bread. We are all members of that one body in Christ. So let us not make distinction in the status, in our faith gathering and worship. Well, of course, in our church, except for those families with babies and toddlers in the cry room at the back, hi to all of you, wave at me, hallelujah. Right, we do not have any other special room for VIP members. The Corinthians missed the point when they thought of the Lord's Supper only in terms of meeting their needs, physical needs, and elevating their social status. They missed the point totally. So today, as we reflected on this passage, do we also carry other forms of misconceptions or wrong understanding regarding the communion? There is nothing new under the sun. Today, we see believers taking the communion, thinking that He has some supernatural powers to solve all their problems. Any, any parents here took communion last week and prayed for good PSI results for your children? Uh, don't raise your hand. Uh, put out your hand. Yeah. We think that we take the communion, whoa, boom, supernatural power, all my problems is solved. No. Communion is meant to unite the body of Christ and to remember what Christ has done for us. The emblems cannot solve your problems, but Jesus can. Can I hear a loud amen? And the second misconception, that there's something that eating a communion will get them to heaven. No, communion is not a passport to heaven. We are all saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Can I hear a lot? Amen to that. Hallelujah. And the third misconception is this. Something that the communion will cleanse us of all our sins. Whew, I eat already. Whew, no more sin. No, communion is not an eraser. To cheat, to cheat. You have already been forgiven by the finished work of Christ on the cross. But we have to come to Him in confession and repentance. But communion is not for the purpose of cleansing your sin. And last but not least, something that communion will make us whole and will be healed physically. So you take communion every day. Breakfast, lunch and dinner, supper, tea break. No. Communion is not a vitamin, it is not a supplement, it is not anti-aging, it is not some kind of elixir pill. If it is, you will see the 12th apostle still walking in our streets today. They will not die. So it is not some kind of special uh, elixir or some sort of vitamins or supplements. These are the misunderstandings of the communion that are unfounded in the scripture. And some of us may be guilty as well including myself. Well, I confess, I confess. I used to think that I take communion, I'll be healed physically. So I confess myself. Yes, our God is sovereign. You may have all those needs answered, but that is because of your faith. It is definitely not in this context of Paul writings with regards to the Lord's Supper. Our God is sovereign and uh, He can do whatever He wants to answer our prayers and of course, we have, must have faith in our, in our prayers. 
but it is not in the context of the Lord's Supper. And Paul wanted us to discern the body during communion and how one should behave when we gather. We are to remember what Christ has done and not focus on self or what divides the church. We have to remember what Christ has done when we partake the Lord's Supper and not focus on ourselves and what that divides the church. We are to, we are to honour Christ and consider one another at the table. At the same time, it is not a call for deep personal uh, introspection to determine whether one is worthy of the table. Rather, it is a call to examine one's attitude to worship God and honour each other at the Lord's table. We are to examine our own attitude to worship God and honour each other at the Lord's table. Verse 26 exhorts us, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. We say that every, every time uh, in our communion Sunday. If the Lord's Supper meal itself is a place of proclaiming the gospel, then we ought to examine ourselves in terms of our attitude towards the body before we partake it. The Lord's Supper is not just any meal. It is the meal in which we share and commune with the Lord together at a common table with one loaf and one common cup. So when we partake, when we participate at the Lord's table, it is a declaration of our solidarity and loyalty to our Lord Jesus Christ. It commemorates not only Jesus' death and work of salvation, but also that covenantal relationship with God, with all the participants. Church, we call it the Holy Communion because it signifies fellowship with God and the family of God. We eat together with the fellowship of one another and with the fellowship of God in our midst. Communion represents a sacred time of intimate bond, closeness, and unity as one body of Christ. Can I hear a loud amen to that? So we consider one another, be united, and treat one another equally. And there is this story about the Duke of Wellington. After he defeated the Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo, if you study the British history, it was a very famous battle. The Duke actually attended a small church where he, where he came forward and he knelt down to receive the communion. At that time, an old man in tattered clothes came and knelt beside him to receive the communion as well. A deacon saw it. He ran immediately to the old man, placed his hand on his shoulder and whispered to the old man, say, hey, move away. The Duke is here. Keep a distance from the Duke. So overhearing this, the Duke actually immediately grabbed the old man and told him, don't move. We are all equal here. Don't move. We are all equal here. Save me. We are all equal. As Christians, we are all children of God. We are all equal in Christ. Galatians 3 reminds us there is neither Jew or Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
I believe the Lord's Supper is one of the formative ways that God uses to help us have unity, to teach us to treat one another equally in this big family, in this big body of Christ. He helps us recognize that we are one. It is both a physical act of gathering and it's also a spiritual act of being united in our Lord Jesus Christ. So let us partake in a worthy manner. In conclusion today, the issue with the Corinthian church was not considering one another when they gather. They competed with God for the attention of men and they abused the Lord's Supper by making a distinction between social class. However, God wants us to be discerning in how we behave when we gather. So let us consider one another, seek to honour God, seek to honour Christ in our gathering. We honour Christ by not drawing attention away from Him. We lay down our individual freedom for the sake of focus and unity in the body during corporate worship. Let us honour God by recognising the one body of Christ. Let us consider one another and treat others equally in the eyes of God. Shall we pray? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your reminder from 1 Corinthians 11, from Paul's writing. Lord, we want to honour you in our gathering. Lord, we know sometimes, knowingly or unknowingly, we have robbed you of the attention of others in our church or grace group gathering. The Lord, instead of helping others to focus on Christ, His Word, Lord, we talk about many things. We want to show other people about many things and we rob the attention of you. Lord, help us to lay down our individual spiritual freedom, O oh Father, for the sake of unity, for the sake of focus onto you. And Lord, we know that Lord, many of us may have misunderstood the communion. Instead of remembering your death, your resurrection and your soon return, Lord, we treated it as a time of asking, of praying for personal gains. Lord, forgive us, O oh Father. So Lord, today your, your, your word enlighten us. Speak to our hearts, O oh Father, that Lord, we will have the correct attitude when we come before the Lord's table. And Lord, we ask the Lord this, this morning, if we have taken the communion meal in any unworthy manner, Perhaps we have despised people in, the, in, the, in our midst, O oh Father. We ask for your forgiveness, O oh Father. We want to be a more inclusive church where everyone can worship and serve you joyfully. We want to see a more hospi hospitable church, O oh Father, that everyone who joins in the service of Grace Group feels welcome. So, Father, change our hearts, O oh Father. And together, Lord, we want to honour you in our gathering by recognising the Lord, we are all together, one body of Christ. We are all equal in your sight and we are all children in your eyes, O oh Lord. So Lord, may you be glorified in our midst whenever we gather, O oh Father. May your name be magnified, O oh Father. 
Oh, thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. So Lord, we commit all of us onto your hands this morning. Help us to, to have a renewed understanding of what Holy Communion really is. And help us, Lord, to remember and give thanks for all we have done on the cross for us. Because of your death and resurrection, we have the eternal hope. And we can go out and share the gospel of Jesus Christ to your return, O Father. We thank you, Lord. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people say, Amen and Amen. Shall we give the Lord a clap offering? Hallelujah. Can I invite you to stand right now as the worship team leads us in the song? And since now we have a better understanding of what Holy Communion really is, shall we worship God with a song and thank God for what He has done for us and to honour one another. And if you have any prayer needs, can I invite you to come to the front? The altar is open that we can, our leaders and pastors can pray for you. You bled for me Hallelujah. the cross Let's lift our hands and worship the Lord. Hallelujah. And you lay your crown for my joy and victory. the words the word of the Lord reminds us the Holy Communion is to come together as one church to treat one another equally it is not a place it's not a time that we come to ask God for personal gains but I just sense that right now this time as you open the altar I just sense there's some needs among us that you want to commit to the Lord in prayer and then ask the Lord 
to touch you in His own special way. If you want to receive physical healing, if you want, if you're having a problem for children, family issue this morning, as we continue to worship the Lord, may you just come to the altar so that our pastors and leaders can pray along with you. We are one church. We are one family. Your matter matters to us. We want to support you in our prayer. So as the worship team continue in this song, may I just invite you to come. For the rest, may I just reflect on the lyrics of the song and give thanks to the Lord for what He has done on the cross. Hallelujah. Oh, Hallelujah. 